Welcome to the Use Fusion podcast series Nuclear Collateral Damage Conversations with Survivors and Experts. In this podcast, we aim to raise awareness about the consequences of the nuclear weapons testing or use by uplifting voices of previous and current generations who have been negatively impacted up until this day. In addition to that, we also draw attention to a kinship of nuclear weapons testing or use with colonial histories in different parts of the world. By addressing individual and collective traumas, we pursue to revive, restore, and reclaim human dignity. My name is Agirum Sitianova, and I'm a program assistant at Use Fusion, and I'm very delighted to host the fourth episode of this series. Today, I have a conversation with Ariana Tibben from the Marshall Islands. Ariana is a newly appointed commissioner at the Republic of the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission, where she joins Chair Olson Kellen and co-commissioner Dr. Holly Barker. Ariana holds a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Hawaii at Manoa and currently resides in Majura, where she works with students and youth to encourage engagement in nuclear dialogue. Ariana is descendant of survivors of the catastrophic Bravo shot that was detonated in the Marshall Islands and is a strong advocate for nuclear justice. Ariana has also been working closely with the Republic of the Marshall Islands public school system where she helps create a curriculum that would teach students the nuclear legacy. She also co-teaches and nuclear issues in the Pacific course at the College of the Marshall Islands. I'm very excited to interview Ariana. So without any further delay, let's start our conversation with her. Ariana, thank you very much for being a part of our podcast series and you have done a brilliant work in, in your achievements in raising awareness about the nuclear tests that were conducted in the Marshall Islands by the United States are quite impressive. And I'm very excited to know more about you and your journey. So as the starting question, I would like to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you, Agirim. I would first of all like to thank you and the entire team at Youth Fusion for this wonderful opportunity to be a part of your podcast series. It is truly an honor. And to all our listeners, Yahweh, my name is Ariana Tibun, and I am from the Republic of the Marshall Islands. I have recently been appointed as a commissioner and nuclear envoy to the Republic of the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission, where I join our chair, Alson Kellen and Dr. Holly Barker. Prior to becoming a commissioner, I worked with the RMI National Nuclear Commission. For short, we call it RMI NNC or NNC. I've worked with them for several years as an education and public awareness director. So basically I go around and share information and knowledge with the students and communities about the nuclear weapons testing era and the consequential damages that have resulted from the test. The RMI National Nuclear Commission was established in 2017 to coordinate the government's need to address ongoing unresolved issues and challenges rising from the U.S. nuclear testing program that took place in the Marshall Islands between 1946 and 1958. In 2019, 73 years since the beginning of this nuclear legacy or history, we were finally able to teach the nuclear history in our public school system. And this whole time, since 1946 all the way until 2019, it was not included in school curriculums. I'm not too sure why, but this has caused a generational gap of knowledge regarding the nuclear legacy. And we are doing all that we can now to engage our youth as much as possible because the generation before us aren't really aware of this history. And my generation, we're kind of just learning it ourselves and trying to teach teach each other and educate our the previous generation. 
So anyways, back to a little bit about who I am. I was born and raised in the Marshall Islands. And I too had no clue that my own family members were gigs in one of the United States top secret medical lab studies that was conducted here where the human beings were the test subjects. Ariana, thank you very much for giving such brief introduction. And I'm sure that by the end of the episode, we will know more not only about you, but also about National Nuclear Commission as well. Many people know about the Castle Bravo nuclear test that took place in Bikini Atoll in 1954, and not a lot about the other 66 tested nuclear weapons. But some people, especially younger generation who were born after the end of the Cold War, may not know the historic background of what actually happened in different atolls of the Marshall Islands. Can you please tell our audience a bit more about the history of nuclear weapons testing in the Marshall Islands? Yes, thank you for asking. So in terms of the history of the nuclear weapons testing era, truly, I honestly believe what our government knows now is just the tip of the iceberg. There is mounds and mounds, thousands of information out there, but we just have not been like focused on the nuclear legacy and it was just recently in 2019 that we're trying to relearn this information and with with a lot of information remaining classified from us when we had asked for information to be declassified we were handed over like chapters of information that were redacted so most of the pages came back to our government they were blank and stamped deleted so that's that's where we are with this knowledge and right now we are trying to get as much information as possible from independent researchers and independent studies but in terms of the history of nuclear testing in the marshall islands just to briefly explain in 1946 the people of bikini atoll there's several atolls the Marshall Islands is comprised of 29 atolls, and in 1946, the people of one of those atolls is called Bikini. It's the further, it's the furthest um, atoll within the Marshall Islands, Relic and Rada chains. It was it was chosen as a nuclear test site by the U.S. government, and when they had went there to ask the people of Bikini if they could evacuate their homes so that they could test their weapons for the sole good of mankind the people were sort of left with no choice but to agree to go because by the time when the u.s had arrived they arrived in large numbers and they arrived with their weapons and machinery and this obviously scared the people and they kind of had no choice but to agree to go and so they had moved the people this was the first occurrence of relocating a community and they had moved them to what was known what is known as Rongrug Atoll and Rongrug Atoll is an uninhabited atoll in the first place and when the U.S. had placed the community there in Rongrug they they were there for two years where they suffered severe famine they had dropped off some food with them when they had initially brought them there but the food had ran out within just several weeks. And so the people had to fend for themselves. The atoll remains, it was uninhabited because there's just not enough food sources there. When they tried to plant food, it just doesn't really grow. And then all of the fish surrounding that atoll, most of it is cicatera fish. And so when they would eat the fish, when they consume the fish, they would have like allergic reactions to it. So how, based off of stories and survivor survivor accounts of what happened was the men at that time, they would eat just enough fish to have enough energy to sail out and be gone for a few days to go fishing out in the ocean, like far away from Rongruk and then bring back fish for the community. And this happened like just a few times because of the rough weather conditions and 
So anyways, after they had moved all the people of Bikini back, um, they they took them away from Rungrut and then they moved them to Kwajalein. And I'm sorry, this is going to be a lot of moving around. And to all our listeners, it might be helpful if you have a map of the Marshall Islands in front of you to see how they're moving these people around. So they moved the people of Bikini from Rungrut to Kwajalein. There they waited for the government this was during the trust territory era so they were waiting for the um trust territory to assign a new atoll where they would relocate them to and while they were living on Kwajalein they were living right beside the airstrip the airport runway and you could also imagine the trauma of you know living beside the paved um runway where it's really hot and then they were all living in tents and they were afraid not like all this airplanes was a very foreign thing at the time and they were living right next to the runway where airplanes were just going on and off throughout the day and so after they had finally selected an island for the people to move to they relocated them to that island and it's called Kale Island if you're looking at your map now you would be able to compare how tiny Kale Island is compared to their home of Bikini Atoll. And then they moved them to Kale Island and some of them, they moved to an even smaller island on Majuro and it's called Ejej Island. So Ejej is a part of Majuro Atoll. So just a few of those Bikinians moved to Ejej, the rest went to Kale. Now back to the nuclear testing. This, okay, now we're in 1947. And in 1947, the United States then decided, sorry, this is like before they moved the people to Kale, but the US had decided to move the people of Enewedak. If you look at your map, the people of Enewedak were now being moved to Wujilang Atoll, which is a little bit south of Enewedak. And the reason was for the United States to use Enewedak as a test site as well. So now they've established two test sites, which was one in Bikini and one in Enewetak. And over time, over the 12 years where they had conducted the test, they had conducted 43 tests in Enewetak, 23 in Bikini, and one in between Enewetak and Bikini. And then this is this this next part is where we have two more atolls involved in the um, scenario because now we had Bikini and Enuedak as the testing sites and then the next two atolls would be Rongalap and Wudaruk. If you look at your map, Rongalap and Wudaruk are fairly close to Bikini, but there's also the other atolls right next to them that are also close as well, but those other atolls were not included as the downwinder atolls. It was only Rongalap and Bikini. So when the test, but when the Castle Bravo shot was detonated on the morning of March 1st, 1954, the downwinder communities were determined or they were decided that the US had decided that the downwinder communities were the people of Udruk and Rongalap only. If you look at your map, you would see how problematic that is because we have Ailuk with Ligip on all those other atolls that are right next to Wudruk. And they were not, they were not evacuated. They evacuated the people of Wudruk and Rongalap three days after the bomb, the Castle Bravo bomb was detonated. By now, the people were, a lot of them were suffering from headache stomach ache, severe nausea, and from survivor accounts or the interviews that we had spent hours listening to, their fingernails, some of them, their fingernails had fallen off, some of their fingernails had turned black, their hair had fallen off, they had, um, they had developed blisters throughout their bodies, and then they said that when they were they would scratch their um, skin because it was they were under the radioactive ashes or the radioactive fallout. They weren't sure what it was, but when they had scratched their skin, the skin would peel off as they scratched it. 
their water wells and water catchments had turned yellow and the community was just really, really sick. On the men that were out fishing that day when they brought back the fish and they consumed the fish, they said it it tasted as if they were like eating sand. They, and so they also felt like there was sand in their eyes as they felt like there was sand in their eyes. And this was three days after the, um, the Castle Bravo test, right? And while they evacuated the people, they had also stripped them naked on the ships where they hosed them down with the power hose and this part they hardly talk about it because of the trauma and humility that is associated with it they had the entire community standing on the ship naked and they hosed them down they said it felt like a um, pressure washer or like they felt like it was stronger than a fire hose but they had hosed them down and then given them um, small towels to dry up and cover up with. And then they were given soldiers underwear and t-shirts to wear for the journey from their atolls, their home atolls to Kwajalein Atoll. Arriving in Kwajalein Atoll, this is where, this is the um, site where Project 4.1 happened and Project 4.1, in, in short, it was the study of radiation on human beings. and. For the next three months, the people of Wudarak Atoll would be monitored. So three times daily, they had to take, people of Ronglap and Wudarak both, they had to take blood and urine samples. And also three times daily, the people had to walk over to the lagoon or they would transport them on the bus and then take them to the lagoon. And then they would have them scrub their blisters with soap in salt water and then, um, a military personnel would come around with a Geiger counter and then, you know, do the whole body assessment and the Geiger counter would just like, da, 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 da. it would just go off because they were just exposed to too much radiation. And this is just two of the animals, but the, the, they're the only two that the U.S. deemed were, um, you know, in the way of radioactive fallout. There's many more stories from all those other atolls that are surrounding it. But anyways, moving along just a little bit more. <laughs> There's so much on this. Like I said, we only know the tip of the iceberg. But moving along, after they had the people scrub their bodies um, three times daily, people of Wudurug were on Kwajalein for three months. And then they moved them back to Wudurug without any environmental remediation whatsoever. They just moved them back. And then for the people of Rongalap, where they considered it was like highly contaminated, they had evacuated or moved the people back to Rongalap three years after the Bravo shot. And still after, the, even though there was a petition by the people of the Marshall Islands to the United Nations in 1954, just a few months after the Bravo shot was tested, the U.S. still continued on with the testing for the next four years. Ariana, thank you very much for giving such a detailed information. And I think that it's very important to visualize how people were affected, how they were moved forcefully from one place to another and their lives just drastically changed because of the nuclear tests. Following the question on history, the nuclear legacy of the Marshall Islands is strongly intertwined with colonial legacy, which unfortunately had been the case until 1996, when the Republic of the Marshall Islands gained its independence from the US. This kinship of the nuclear and colonial legacy is quite brightly reflected in the forced displacement of indigenous communities as you have already mentioned uh, answering the previous question. This means that the rights of people to self-determination, to their land, to their ocean culture were just forcefully swayed by the US. Despite gaining independence, if I understand correctly, the United States has kept a defense and security influence in the Marshall Islands under amended compact of free association, 
Can you elaborate briefly what exactly compact or free association means, and more specifically in terms of nuclear weapons testing and the responsibility of the U.S. under this document? Thank you. So briefly, just an overview of the Compact of Free Association between the Marshall Islands and the United States government. It is an agreement that entered into force in 1986, and over the years it had several amendments. And the Compact, which we also call the Compact of Free Association, came into being as an extension of the United States United Nations territorial trusteeship that I had mentioned earlier. Um, so it was an extension of the press territory agreement, which obliged the federal government of the United States to quote, promote the development of the people of the trust territory towards self-government or independence as appropriate to the particular circumstances of the trust territory and its people and the freely expressed wishes of the peoples concerned, um, end quote. Under the compact, the United States federal government provides guaranteed financial assistance administered through its Office of Insular Affairs in exchange for full international defense authority and responsibilities. Furthermore, the United States is also obligated to provide financial assistance and compensation to the people of the four atolls that I had mentioned earlier, Rongalap, Udaruk, Bigini, and Anuata. And they were considered directly affected by the United States nuclear weapons testing program. And at one point, the Compact of Free Association also had allowed for a joint U.S. Marshallese nuclear claims tribunal to be established. Ariana, thank you so much for your answer, which actually very smoothly leads us to the next question about the Nuclear Claims Tribunal, which of course played an important part in the reparations, which Marshallese had and have all the rights to. This tribunal heard cases from those people affected by the nuclear weapons testing conducted by the US and, of course, delivered judgments as well. However, the main question is open, at least to me, in terms of the enforcement of those judgments and if the compensations which Marshallese claimed were fulfilled by the US, bearing in mind that the tribunal stopped fully operating in 2011 because of the budget. So my question is the following, has the US government provided Marshallese with adequate reparations and fulfilled its responsibility for the devastating damages caused by the nuclear weapons testing. Thank you for bringing this up. So the people, in short, the people of RMI have not been fairly compensated for the damages that they have suffered because of the United States nuclear weapons testing program in our country from 1946 to 1958. Former U.S. Attorney General Dick Thornburg concluded that the amount provided by the United States under the original U.S. RMI Compact of Free Association um, Agreement, or the compact, to redress damages caused by the tests were, quote unquote, manifestly inadequate. The Nuclear Claims Tribunal that was established under the compact to adjudicate and pay Nuclear claim was only able to pay a small fraction of the damages it awarded before it ran out of its funds. In current dollars, the total amount of unpaid damages awards issued by the Nuclear Claims Tribunal is approximately a little over $3 billion U.S. dollars. We are hopeful, however, because there is a Section 177 in the agreement that does allow the RMI to submit a request to the U.S. Congress for additional funds. It is known as the Change Circumstances Petition part of the agreement, and it would allow the RMI to submit a request for claims that arise or are discovered after the effective date of the Section 177 and Compact of Free Association Agreement. Ariana, it is still great that there's avenues that Marshallese can use in order to claim for reparations, even though they're quite limited. 
As a human rights lawyer myself, the tireless work and activism of Marshallese do not stop to impress me. In 2014, the Republic of the Marshall Islands filed a lawsuit against nine nuclear states and only three of them against the UK, India and Pakistan were brought to the International Court of Justice. Yet, unfortunately, they were dismissed on their jurisdiction grounds. This shows the rigorous work of the Marshall Islands in the nuclear disarmament field. But this also shows that speaking law to power fails when it comes to nuclear states. However, Marshallese showed that speaking truth to power still works. And I applaud the relentless work of your community in this regard. And my question goes exactly to the role of nuclear legacy in the formation of the national identity of the Marshallese people. The trauma from the colonial and nuclear legacies undoubtedly remains there. Long-lasting impact of nuclear weapons testing have been ignored, but affects previous and present generation and will affect future generations as well. I'm interested to know how this legacy impacted the overall development of the Republic of Marshall Islands and its people. Thank you, Agidim. The nuclear legacy has since shaped our values and character today as Marshallese. The overall health of the people has been drastically altered as a result of the nuclear weapons testing program. And this has left us with no choice but to be survivors and to be advocates for each other. I'd also like to point out that the trauma that's associated with this legacy plays a role as we're now trying to educate each other. Marshallese people are naturally kind-hearted and very, very humble people. This history that has scarred many families, naturally they've withdrawn from speaking up about these issues. However, there are a certain few who have weathered the storms and have been vocal since the very beginning and continue to add to be advocates for the voiceless. With the nuclear legacy being integrated into school curriculums just recently, it will now be up to our youth and the younger generations to educate the older generations, such as mine, who missed out on this important piece of history and to at where we had to learn it ourselves. And following what you already said about education and the curriculum, um, and speaking of the historical impact, I think it's important to know how the history of the testing and that period of time is being taught in schools. In regard to this, I cannot ignore your personal and, and professional, very impressive contribution to the development and the implementation of the curriculum about the nuclear legacy of the Marshall Islands. Can you please tell us more about the campaign which successfully led to, um, to great results and now the history of nuclear weapons testing was added in the curriculum? Yes, thank you for highlighting this very important development. I would first of all like to thank the Pacific Community, also known as SPC, for partnering with the National Nuclear Commission and the Marshall Islands Ministry of Education and Public School System and integrating the nuclear legacy into the social citizenship education curriculum. So at the moment, the curriculum is being piloted from fifth to 12th grade, and we've included as much information that needs to be taught in schools as possible. It sort of starts with geography, such as the basics of where the bombs were tested. Then as the grade level goes up, more information is added and the students will also get to learn about the constant displacement of communities and the many hardships that they had faced as they were being relocated. By the time the students get to high school, they would start learning about the politics at the time and the United Nations trust territory of the Pacific era. And eventually they would also learn about Project 4.1, which basically, as I mentioned before, was the study of radiation on human beings where Marshallese were the, were the test subjects to the study. There was even a control group in the study, if our listeners didn't know. 
Anyways, it is a lot, but it's because the Ministry of Education will also be using the resources in other departments, such as the English department, where the students would be reading a book about the nuclear legacy for their English and doing book reports on that. And the SPC being a part of this would help the students in identifying human rights violations of the legacy as they grow older and learn more of this history. So this is why it's really critical and I'm really grateful for the SPC's role in linking human rights um, concerns with the nuclear legacy. Ariana, thank you very much. And being honest, I really love the outline of the curriculum you just shared. I think it has very holistic approach to it because it starts from teaching the basics like geography and then goes into details about forced displacements and then goes deeper into politics and human rights violations. And I think that it's really amazing. And now it also gives us a smooth transition to the next question. You work as Education and Public Awareness Director at the Marshall Islands Nuclear Commission, leading the work of one of the pillars of the Commission related to education. I am interested to hear about the Commission's strategy to achieve nuclear justice. There are five main pillars indicated in the document, such as compensation, health, environment, national capacity, and education and awareness. And I want to know more about the pillar that you are responsible for, but also about other pillars as well. Thank you for highlighting the National Nuclear Commission strategy for nuclear justice. And as you mentioned, there are five pillars that we are currently focused on or prioritizing. And the first one being compensation. As I mentioned earlier, the amount of awards that remain pending is a little over $3 billion. And the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission put it as the first priority because this people deserve compensation for all the damages that has that was caused by the nuclear testing. And number two is healthcare. Um, healthcare and compensation, they kind of like intertwine because for the health section, there are a lot, and I, I mean a lot, of Marshallese who are suffering from cancer today. And under the Nuclear Claims Tribunal, there was like, I have to look at the numbers, but there was over 30 different types of cancers that were um, that were confirmed to be linked to the nuclear weapons testing program. And those different cancers had different amounts of compensation that were they were eligible for. For example, if somebody had stomach cancer, they were eligible for a $125,000 payment from the Nuclear Claims Tribunal. But because there is no tribunal, the, the tribunal is still there, but it's not functioning because it has, it has run out of funds, they're not able to receive their compensation. And I would also like to note that there is not an oncologist on the island. And when somebody is diagnosed with cancer, they're most likely to fly out from the Marshall Islands, so migrate out to the United States where they would go and seek healthcare. And then with insurance and being in a foreign country, this in itself is a lot of challenge for the people. Number three is environmental remediation. There has been so much damage caused to the environment. The United States, even in their own reports, they were monitoring the environment. They moved the people of Rongla back to Rong because now they wanted to see how the radiation was traveling through the food chain and into the people's bodies. And so they are fully aware that there's, um, there's, there needs to be environmental remediation done. And there's a United States DOE Department of Energy program that is currently in charge of monitoring and maintaining the Rona Dome. And they do extensive studies. They have they have so much fully funded studies on the Rona Dome and they provide so much information on their studies. But the problem is we don't know how to use that information. A lot of them 
come in like really thick scientific term papers the, the community and the government we're not sure what are we supposed to do with these findings so we've been advocating for these reports to be provided in like without using all the jargon and just plain English where anybody like a fifth grader could grab a report and understand whether the Runa Dome is highly contaminated or not. And so we're trying to prioritize environmental remediation because people of Bikini and Rongolat are still displaced till this day. They, it is not clear when they will be able to return to their homes because of the high levels of radioactive contamination. Number four on the pillar, the priorities, the pillars is um, national capacity building. We put that there because since the beginning, our like we as Marshallese just like the, the government, the offices weren't really working together to figure this out. So the NNC placed that as a pillar to have agencies such as the Marshall Islands Marine Resources Authority and the Environment Protection Authority to work together. And so there's there's MOUs between those two places and our college, the College of the Marshall Islands, to try to have more Marshallese getting into this kind of field work and conducting this research because it is very important for us to have data that is owned by the Marshall Islands government and not just data that we been handed to from the United States government, which is the same government that conducted this nuclear testing. And so we're we're trying so hard to build on national capacity and having more Marshallese get into this work. Uh, number five, last but not the least, is the education pillar. And yes, we do more than just working with the with the students and the schools and the curriculum because it's education and public awareness. We also like for my little department in the NNC, I've tried, I've been focusing on getting the communities more involved because there is like there is lack of public knowledge on this information and we're doing these radio shows weekly and just like did you know did you know did you know that there was 60 cent tests did you know that they tested in Anawadak? because simple like to us it may seem simple or basic information but to the community they just they're just not aware of this information just like i was not aware i had no idea that there was more than one test growing up i honestly like thought there was only one test my whole life and when i had moved away to study in the united states and started doing my own research i started to learn that there were 67 tests oh but that's not the bad part the bad part is that my own family members were guinea pigs and i was just like i just couldn't piece together the puzzle because i was wondering why 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 wasn't this ever talked about at home these are these are my grandparents parents in these photos how is this how did we not talk about this at the dinner table <laughs> so there's just like a gap of knowledge and i think it's because that older generation just didn't talk about it because of the trauma associated with it and so my parents generation they just they don't talk about it either and it's up to my generation like there's only a few of us just to note that are into the nuclear legacy too and i'm just trying so hard to i don't know i'm kind of like a what do i call it like a like the guy at the dealership that's trying to sell a car like i'm just trying to like advertise this history <laughs> to get people more on board <laughs> I think that some people would say that these are not the nicest lessons to learn, but I would disagree and say that lessons from the past have not been learned, unfortunately, and as many people as possible should learn about different events happened in the past. But going back to you, 
you have achieved amazing results in terms of nuclear legacy education in the Marshall Islands. It is always important to know your own history in a transparent way about what happened in the past. Yet, it is also important for the people in a country that is responsible and contributed largely to also know this history as well. Do you think that education on the nuclear legacy is being taught in the U.S. schools? And whether the awareness level of the U.S. Americans include the knowledge about nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands, not only Castle Bravo test, but other tests as well? I honestly believe that this nuclear legacy is not being taught in the U.S. schools. I was I was a student at um, Hawaii, like I went to high school there, and not once did they even mention the Marshall Islands. So <laughs> how would like how would the nuclear legacy be taught if we're not even taught about like the country? And so I just I I don't think that the US is teaching their students this this piece of shared history because this is not just the and I'm glad you brought this up because this is not just a Marshallese history. This is and it's not just the United States history too. It's it's United Nations history because this was during the United Nations Trust Territory era. And if just if if we had it our way, I feel like we would fight all the way up until there was a UN curriculum that required all UN members to be like teaching this in their schools. I have a lot of American friends who just have no clue whatsoever about the nuclear testing. Ariana, I share your opinion that curriculum should be universal and should be implemented in educational institutions in as many countries as is possible. There are a lot of courses that are being developed by UN agencies or regional organizations, but to my knowledge, I myself personally have never seen these kind of courses that would include voices of people who were affected by nuclear weapons testing, for example. But maybe it's only me. And but it's very important to highlight that because, as we know, nuclear weapons have very intersectional impact as well. My next question is, if you could have the opportunity to go to the U.S. Congress, which issues would you bring before senators? If I had the opportunity to go to the United Congress, what issue would I bring before the senators? I would, first of all, address the health care issue because we obviously cannot undo any of what anything that has already been done but we what we can do is try to solve the problems that are currently in front of us and the healthcare issue is just it is it overwhelming we have multiple generations of families that are being diagnosed with cancer there's genetic mutations and i believe it's from the nuclear testing and being exposed to radioactive fallout. But if I had a chance to speak to Congress, I would provide a testimony about how cancer has really like made its way to every single family in the Marshall Islands. And we're not being treated for this cancer. We're not, we don't have a cancer center. We don't even have an oncologist on island. And if anything, we don't even have a referral program for cancer patients. What our government can afford now is to provide health care for patients who have stage one, two, and I think some stage three cancer patients. But once you're diagnosed with stage four cancer, our government cannot provide referral for you. And so the families just leave to, they migrate out and live with families abroad to get the cancer care. But yeah, I would, the first and foremost would be to address the healthcare issues. Number two, 
if I was to go to Congress and if I had a chance to provide a testimony in Congress, I would definitely, definitely push for the nuclear legacy to be taught in, like for Congress to lobby with the United Nations that this, like, as you mentioned, it should be like a global curriculum because everybody knows about what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If you ask like somebody Hiroshima, like they know, they know Hiroshima, they know what time Hiroshima, like the bomb at Hiroshima happened, but this information, nobody knows about it. And a lot of the, the nuclear testing program that was conducted in the Marshall Islands by the United States government, we, we sacrificed our own peace and our own health for global peace. And I think it's very important for everybody to know that for the whole world to know that it the Marshallese people sacrificed a lot for there to be global peace and I feel like I have a lot to say to Congress but those would be the two main um testimonies that I would have for the U.S. Congress to figure out a healthcare solution that are suffering from not just cancer but all the other radiation related illnesses and then number two for the u.s congress to lobby for the islands to teach the nuclear legacy in united nations curriculum or a global curriculum because then if we could teach like the whole world we would have scientists lawyers doctors like you name it that will be focused on this like legacy and then they would be doing the work to try to solve the problems of cancer or environmental remediation or i don't know <laughs> and that would be the problem solver <laughs> and it would be great to have also to have it from the perspective of those who suffer the nuclear tests because as we know those who suffered are from indigenous communities from those countries who were colonized in the past by those um, more powerful states when they treated a lot of people as guinea pigs, as you mentioned before. Um, and now I would like to go to the last question, but not the least. What lesson do you think is important to learn from the nuclear legacy that the Marshallese have been carrying over decades? This lesson should take into account not only people from the United States or Republic of Marshall Islands, but from everywhere. I think the lesson is it's not worth it. It's simply it is not worth it. None of it is worth it. Nuclear warfare, it, it, it is not worth it. If these politicians have a lot of politics against each other, then they should engage in a fistfight, but not include like everybody else to be victim their you know their own personal agendas it is not worth it i truly believe this fight would solve a problem at nuclear warfare between whoever is in charge because a lot of times i feel like it would it might just be like two or three politicians that are against one or two politicians from a different country and they would just you know go at it and show their um nuclear warfare come up with their nuclear whatever nuclear power they have but it is not worth it that's the lesson is that it's not worth it so many lives so many families so many hearts broken because of the nuclear legacy it would be interesting to see if um that would be a real diplomacy if they actually did that um in the first yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that like, like nuclear everything right it's really connected to this toxic masculinity um and this kind of patriarchal um kind of representation of nuclear weapons in general and how the weapons have been pictured and i i mean i kind of agree with you and it would, that would be interesting <laughs> And I think that the last, I know that I asked the last one, but I think that the last thing is, is there something closing remark that you want to say and to say to our listeners? And before you say that, I would really like to express gratitude to 
be a guest speaker in, in our episode and to to do all the work that you've been doing for so many years and that's really impressive and that was a great honor for me to have you uh, here and to talk to you and now the floor is yours. Oh, thank you, Aigirim. I just want to say thank you to our listeners for listening to this podcast series and it was truly an honor and I am very grateful for opportunities such as this to share, to be able to share our story because I know somewhere out there, one of you listeners will pick up on this and be advocates for not just for the Marshallese, but for all the other nuclear advocates or the frontline communities as well. And I'm very grateful for the Youth Fusion to be able to provide this platform for us to share these stories and share our voices. And I'm just really grateful for this opportunity. And I would like to thank you once again. And I look forward to the partnerships that we will be having in the near future. And for any bridges that will be built between our listeners and you and us and I'm just really grateful for this and I would like to thank you once again and Yahweh again to all our listeners and that is all <laughs> absolutely thank you. thank you so much this is the end of our exciting conversation with Ariana Tippen from the Marshall Islands and the end of the fourth episode of the podcast series nuclear collateral damage Conversations with survivors and experts. Youth Fusion expresses its gratitude to Ariana and thank you all for tuning in and listening to us. You can find more inspiring interviews on Spotify or on the links provided on the Youth Fusion website, youthfusion.org. And if you visit our website, you will also find an article foreman of this interview and everything you want to learn about our organization, projects and activities. Youth Fusion is a worldwide networking platform for young individuals and organizations in the field of nuclear disarmament, risk reduction and non-proliferation. We focus on youth action and intergenerational dialogue, building on the links between disarmament, peace climate action, sustainable development, and building back better from the pandemic. Stay tuned with Youth Fusion for the next episode of this series. Goodbye.